0: We lack a land ethic. That's where I introduced that concept of a land ethic. So an ethic is something that you do when no one is watching. Mm. Okay. A rule is something that you do when people are watching you. Right. But an ethic is deep down in you. You do it because you know it's the right thing to do Mm. and you don't need anybody to be policing you to do it. We have an, an, an ethic towards fellow man. Mm. And in our case, we can say we have an ethic towards God. Like, how am I supposed to behave in, in relation to God? How am I supposed to behave in relation to um, other humans? But where is our land ethic? Where is the ethic that relates to moral decisions in terms of how we relate to the rest of creation? Right. We don't have it.
1: Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, our guest is Dr. Daniel gonzalez Sokolowski, professor of ecology at Andrews University. This week, we are discussing the importance of developing a land ethic, in addition to the ethics we hold towards both God and man. What does it mean to see ourselves as cohabitors of the planet, rather than sole occupants? How can we develop a moral compass for how we treat the habitats and life forms with whom we share this vast yet limited resource called Earth. Before we get started, we wanna thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is AdventNext.
0: Part of my dream, uh, even while in the process of becoming a biologist was um, sharing that biology. So people like David Attenborough and all these documentary filmmakers and and sharers of the information, just high admiration. And I have been a part of two documentaries um, dealing with manatees where I was called in as a scientific expert, and they were a blast. It was really fun to be a part of.
1: How did you get interested in biology? How did that become a passion of yours? And where did you study?
0: Yeah, uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I think, you know, biology is a broad field and I think a lot of people that are interested in ecology, in field biology like I am, can trace the, the origin of that desire to their early childhood and that's certainly the case with me. I knew from very early on that I wanted to be a biologist. I didn't know at the time that it was called being a biologist but I recall for instance in uh, fifth grade during a, um, a science project, mm. Uh, where i I prepared a project here locally on an endangered butterfly that uh, we 're still dealing with, and i I went to Andrews University to talk to someone at the biology department i didn 't know anybody to help me find a specimen similar or maybe of that butterfly that I wanted to do the presentation on so I I think I can, if I look back now with hindsight, I can see that there was an early interest that was not imposed on me by anybody other than my own love of of nature. Curiosity, Yeah. And you were
1: in the fifth grade when this happened? Mm
0: -hmm. Right here in Ruth Murdoch.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. And so you just began to follow that passion and and how did that lead you into, I mean, you got a degree from Duke. uh... Yeah.
0: So I, I, you know, in high school, I already knew, okay, I want to be a biologist. I had, you know, I, I watched documentary films in nature uh, i was a, an avid fan and i would consume national geographics like maybe other kids consume comic books yeah um i wasn't really interested in sports i played sports but never at like the competitive level and so i knew i was heading that direction and most everybody in the church that is science-minded um automatically assumes or, or is pointed towards the medical field. Mm. And I went to high school in Montemorelos in Mexico, okay. and there's a medical school there. So the vast majority of my classmates that were science-oriented uh, went to medical school. Interesting. And I took the route of, no, no, I want to be a biologist, and I came to Andrews uh, with that.
1: How did you make that internal decision, though? Because I'm sure there was a lot of pressure, right? exteriorly to kind of well I credit
0: my parents um you know every every family is different and certainly uh different ethnic groups have different pressure on their kids and in my case uh, both my parents are educators they're both they both have PhDs in uh in education so they they believed in education but they also believed in following your own Mm. desire and, uh, and your passion. And, and so they never, you know, they, they just said, you're going to college, uh, what you study there, that's up to you, but we're going to help you uh, go to college. So there was no pressure to go to medical school or dental school. That was never even assumed. And so I just didn't have that. And I, and I never had that desire. I never, mm. I'm not as interested in humans in that sense.
1: Okay. And so how did that lead you? And you have your PhD from Duke.
0: Yes. So I did my undergrad here and then subsequently a master's at Loma Linda. And then uh, the doors were opened for a PhD at Duke, which at the time I didn't really realize what I was getting myself into. I knew I wanted to do a PhD in biology. Uh, My master's work was in Honduras. Mm. And um, it so happened that randomly a professor from Duke emailed me asking for logistical help to work at that same site with primates. I was working with manatees Hmm. and why did he ask me? Because I opened up that site to work with manatees and so when he consulted somebody locally there they said oh well we have a a student that came from California that you know has been working here. Ask him how he pulled it off you know in terms of Hmm. the logistics and then when I finished at Loma Linda, I emailed this individual again and I said, hey, I'm, I'm finishing up my master's. Would you consider, uh, do you have any openings for your PhD uh, program in terms of uh, someone working in your lab? And uh, he said, come on over, let's interview. And one thing led to another.
1: And, That's fantastic. Yeah. So when you are, you know, we're going to get into this article that you wrote, which is called Why Nature Matters. Yes. And it reveals some of your passions and interests. Um, but before we get there, I'm curious about how was your experience at Duke and pursuing the biology field and at the same time holding on to your faith? Did you ever find tension in those areas and how did you deal with it?
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly um, there is tension in my field to a certain degree with our, with our denomination. I don't know if so much with our faith, but certainly with our with our denomination. Um, and that's not unique. There are other fields that, that have tension as well, I'm sure. Um, in my undergrad, uh, we only slightly talked about some of these topics. We didn't really thoroughly cover some of the topics that might have some tension. And so I didn't really experience that until my master's. And I, I went to um, Loma Linda for my master's. And so it was there that I was really able to express freely some of the questions that I had. And and it was a safe location, if you will, because uh, it was still within the Adventist circle. Duke was actually a remarkable experience. Mm-hmm. I was shocked to a certain degree at how um, uh, non-aggressive and, and amicable the other faculty were and my mm-hmm. colleagues around me. So I never at any point felt any pressure or um,
1: not like the movies no it's like... and
0: I and and everybody's experience is unique right. so I'm I am not discounting anybody who has been ridiculed or has felt pressure but at least in my field and mind you I worked with a primatologist so the way it works in biology is if you work with anything other than humans mm-hmm. you're a biologist mm-hmm. if you work with uh, primates you're an anthropologist, a biological anthropologist. That is, if you're working with monkeys and apes. And if you work with humans, then you're a cultural anthropologist. Mm. So I was working with a biological anthropologist. Um, That means that that department specifically studied monkeys, apes, all primates, and primate evolution. So that would be the department that you would think would be the absolute most controversial and contentious with someone that... Um, believes in creation. And And that
1: wasn't the the case.
0: That wasn't the experience I
1: had. That's awesome. That's super awesome. So tell me a little bit about this article because you have, uh, this is a passion project of yours Mm -hmm. in which, you know, there is some apathy within the church regarding their uh, responsibility for stewardship of the planet. So introduce us into this and kind of where this came about.
0: Yeah. So the the article is titled uh, Why Nature Matters, uh, and it is an article directly written to to educators at at all levels. Um, And the secondary title is Seventh-day Adventism or Seventh-day Adventist education in the Anthropocene, the Anthropocene being the proposed period that we're in now uh, where we are having a sizable impact on the planet. Mm. So the purpose of the article is to bring awareness to our educators to Uh, the plight of the planet, where we are right now, uh, biologically speaking, and in a way that is relevant today, right? What does it mean to be an Adventist in 2020? That's the purpose of the paper.
1: Right. And you, and I went to a presentation you gave and you showed an interesting graph, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that, about the more Bible-believing you are, the less spirit.
0: Yeah, so uh, there isn't a whole lot of study that has been done, at least that I'm aware of, looking at... Um, relationships between um, religious belief, or in this case, a Christian belief, and um, environmental appreciation, or or the the regard for the environment, Fine. and this particular relationship, it was a it was a graph that showed a, a nice linear relationship uh, that was extracted from two questions mm. from a a, a Pew survey, a religious survey of like 30,000 people of all religious uh, um, backgrounds, backgrounds, including atheists. Mm. It was two questions. One question was relating to uh, which do you think better explains the uh, origin of life Mm. or or the diversity of life, you know, evolutionary theory versus creation. Mm. And do you think that environmental regulations uh, overall are good, like are, are beneficial or are overall, you know, the bad. Ne-
1: negative, right? Yeah. yeah.
0: And so the relationship was that um, those that tended to, to think that environmental regulations were bad also had a high score for, um, you know, Creation belief and those that appreciated or recognized that environmental regulations were good and necessary also had a high score on uh, evolution being the explanation for life. And I thought that was really striking. And we as a church were not an exception, we were right on that relationship. We weren't at the very corner of, of no regulation, but we were certainly on that linear trend.
1: Wow. And why do you think that is? Because I think I thought that was an interesting relationship because, you know, we've been given kind of this mandate to be stewards of the earth, you know, coming from the Christian narrative. Adam is told to, you know, name the animals and care for it and to be a husband to the earth. So why, from that biblical perspective, would we necessarily not see the importance of having environmental regulations or addressing ecological concerns? What's been your experience?
0: Yeah, so again... Um we haven't really studied to see why our, uh, our theory and our action um, don't match. Mm. And, and so I can sp- speculate, and I do in the article, I give two reasons why I think that might be the case. I don't think that it's a, a, a malignant reason. I don't think that we, we do it because um, we're trying to purposely destroy the earth. I think that there are byproducts, there are consequences of certain... Uh, philosophical views that we hold mm. um, but the short answer is I, I'm not sure, I don't know right. why, why there's that disconnect mm. but the phenomena is real.
1: What are some of the, the two kind of speculations that you talk about in your article?
0: Yeah, so I think in the article I articulate that one of them is um, perhaps a negative byproduct of our apocalyptic belief, mm. this notion that, um, that the end is near, that God is coming soon, um, gives us relief from uh, the guilt that we should feel for destructive behavior. Mm. So it's think of it as sort of the ultimate um, cop out. Uh, I don't have to worry about the state of the planet because God is coming soon. Everything's going to be recreated. Everything's going to be redone. So why would I spend time, energy, money? to to preserve to to protect things to restore things uh, if in the end that's all going to be
1: done away, with. Done away I, with I've actually heard people say this Yeah
0: and it's commonly used I you know I've heard this my whole life in fact some people have told me why are you squandering the talents that God has given you mm. um, protecting manatees like it's a candid way of saying who cares mm. um, and what that is is it's a deep lack of understanding of how nature works and what it even means to be human.
1: Wow. Yeah, It's interesting because I've heard it said and it's like, well, why do you take a shower every day if you're just going to get dirty again? You know, like why keep up with certain hygiene practices? I mean, so that, I think the logic of that breaks down.
0: Yeah. The logic is is certainly flawed. I mean, we, in our church, we have two, I, I would say pillars that that uh, arose early on in our foundation, right? The emphasis on education is very strong. And, and we think of it now and it's sort of um, obvious or, uh, you know, um, we don't even question it, but we could have gone in different directions. Not all Christian denominations emphasize education. In fact, mm-hmm. some shy away from it. They see it as a danger, um, but not ours. We value education. I think the average, the average Adventist has a higher level of education than, say, the average uh, uh, non uh, Adventist, because we put emphasis in that. We build the first thing we build is a school, right? Mm. The second thing we build is a hospital. So we really emphasize human health. I don't care so much about the health of the planet or the health of, of animals, but human health, we're really good. We have top-notch hospitals, uh, we push medicine, we we place our doctors in a pedestal you know they are the supreme sort of right next to our clergy and rightfully so in in certain respects right yeah. i mean doctors are very very important i'm not trying to demean that at all but you could use the same logic and say hey um the end is near i'm getting a whole new body i'm not taking this one with me when god comes uh you know the, the bible says um ashes to ashes so What is the big deal? Who cares what I put into it? But we have this strong concept of the temple of the Lord. Mm. Um, What about the rest of the creation? Was his garden not his temple too? So Mm. I think that the the analogy or the excuse breaks down very quickly if you think it through.
1: No, I, I think so. And I think that's a really great point too. Like we don't tend to put a lot of resources when it comes to nature. What is some of your critique about you know, what are some of the things that kind of get under your skin when you're thinking about we should be putting more resources and times into X areas?
0: Well, certainly if you read our, we put out a, um, an official statement. The church put out an official statement on the environment mm-hmm. in like the, the mid-90s. I want to say 93, 94. I have it in the article. Um, it's not one of our fundamental beliefs by any, by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a, an official statement. And the language in the statement is so strong, it is inspiring to read. You read it, and I would guess that probably 90% of your readers have never read it or don't even know that we have an official statement on the environment. Hmm. Um, And the truth is, point to me where we have used that statement to make any uh, large-scale decision about how we go about our business, whether it be building things or where we invest money I just I don't see it doesn't translate into the rest of our ethos. So we have the 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 verbiage, the language is there, but it doesn't translate into action. So where along that process between what we profess and what we do d- does it get lost? I'm not sure.
1: Mm. So you talked about there are two reasons that somebody might kind of brush off. Uh, you know, taking care of the environment. One was uh, the sense that God is coming back soon, so why worry about it? What was the, the second one?
0: We don't, we lack a land ethic. That's where I introduced that concept of a land ethic. So an individual by the name of Aldo Leopold, he was a, a naturalist, uh, a, a biologist, uh, wrote a series of essays and he compiled them uh, in the 40s and he, he put together a book called A San County Almanac, sketches here and there. And um, in his final chapter, he has an essay called A Land Ethic, and he introduces this concept of a land ethic. What does he mean? Land, not in the the sense of like uh, terra firme, as in in what you and I walk on. Land, he means um, everything around us Mm. that is non-human. So the mountains, the soil, the rivers, the air, the biological aspects to it, the plants, the animals. So he explains an ethic is something that you do when no one is watching, Hmm. okay? A rule is something that you do when people are watching you. Right. But an ethic is deep down in you. You do it because you know it's the right thing to do, Hmm. and you don't need anybody to be policing you to do it. So the Ten Commandments, for instance, are, are rules, right? It's instruction that God has given us. But I would argue that the golden rule, you know, when Jesus says, do unto others what you would have them do unto you, that is an ethic. Mm. If you follow that ethic, you will complete, you will, you will follow all of the rules of the Ten Commandments, right? right. You're not going to covet someone's wife. You're not going to steal. You certainly won't murder because you're following the, the, the ethic mm. of the golden rule. Yeah. Well, he's yeah. saying we have, we have an, an, an ethic towards fellow man, And in our case, we can say we have an ethic towards God. Like, how am I supposed to behave in relation to God? How am I supposed to behave in relation to um, other humans? But where is our land ethic? Where is the ethic that relates to moral decisions in terms of how we relate to the rest of creation? We don't have it. So what is the analogy here? Um, If I go and I steal from my neighbor... Mm. Not only is that against the law right. uh, of the land, but there's also a moral component there that it was wrong. There's plenty of things I can do to my neighbor that are legal, but we would say they're unethical, mm. right? They're morally wrong. I shouldn't do it. But if in my own land, um, as an Adventist, uh, I, I pour mercury in a, in a river mm. or I cut down all my trees, mm what's the problem? What have I violated? I haven't violated any ethic towards God, certainly no ethic towards another, to, to my neighbor. I mean, not directly anyway. And that's the issue, right? That we are, we we have the ability to make these decisions without any conscious uh, uh, or conscientious effort to see how that would affect the rest of the land. That's it, the argument.
1: It's so interesting too, because I feel like it all plays into each other, right? So we might not have a good land ethic, but in the end, that's going to bite us in the butt, right? Like humanity is going to suffer. We see that with the loss of bees or the pollution of our oceans and how right. is that doing to the fishing industry.
0: So the, the argument I make in this paper of why nature matters is almost entirely selfish. Mm. Like you could easily make the argument that um, outside of an ethic, just for self-preservation, uh, there's an argument to be made about doing the right thing environmentally. We are literally auto-destructing. Wow. Yeah.
1: So basically our lack of care for the environment is actually going to put us in peril. Yeah,
0: unfortunately, though, it affects humans disproportionately. Mm-hmm. So those of us in privilege in the first world, et cetera, um, we, we won't feel the effect in magnitude or, or in, in the temporal scale the way that uh, people that are less fortunate. So if you think about the 7.7 billion people on this planet right now, yeah. um, very few of them can live the lifestyle that you and I live. Mm-hmm. And we, only, we don't see that. We're blind to that, right? And when, and as we're seeing now, the effects of climate change become uh, a reality, and, and we're, we've been measuring this for a while now. So it's no longer talking about what will happen. It's more of what is happening. Yeah. The ones that are feeling it the most and will continue to, to feel it um, are those that, that don't have the access to the things that we do, so the, the poorer individuals of, of this planet. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where the moral compass comes in, right? It's not just what does what I eat, what I wear, what do I consume, how does that affect me, it's how does it affect everybody? And I would even extend it to saying the land ethic, how does it affect the rest of nature,
1: mm-hmm. right? I was just uh, kind of watching a video where they were talking about the effects of, you know, pollution and, 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 uh, the rise in, in the what is it and climate change yep. and basically how sea it's,
0: level rise, probably the sea level rise, yeah. the
1: coral is dying. Yes. Uh, the correlation between the flooding in, um, in East Africa and and the wildfires in Australia yes. and how there's a certain part of the world by the equator. That's going to be most affected mm-hmm. drastically by the, the, the shifts in, in climate. And I think you're making a great point. Like yeah, we have to care about the land, even if it's just for the selfish reason of the pre- pre- preservation of humanity in that sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's sometimes it's daunting because mm-hmm. the more, you know, the more you realize it really is a crisis. Um, and, and oftentimes I'll have students that will walk away from my talks quite depressed because I don't necessarily offer all the answers. And a lot of the answers are difficult. Right. Yeah. These aren't easy. These are global problems. Um, Having said that, we have to face these things head on. We can't keep ignoring or pretending. It's troubling to me that there's a large section of of US uh, inhabitants that uh, that completely deny the reality of some of these things that will, for political reasons, completely deny the reality of climate change. And it's interesting that in the business world, they don't care so much about the political leanings one way or the other, they care about their own business and so companies that are into transportation or, or uh, yeah. they, they model and they are on the forefront of what climate change is doing because it affects their bottom dollar.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because we have this sense that we don't want to regulate big corporations, but they're the ones who stand the most to gain yeah. by disregarding some of these laws.
0: Yeah. And I make that argument in the, uh, in the paper. You know, um, a lot of emphasis is put on personal behavior, you know, and you have these companies, these Global conglomerates that are saying, you know, do the right thing, recycle, reuse, etc., and and personal decisions are good, and they can only take us so far. Though mm-hmm. uh, the major contributors to uh, greenhouse gases are corporations. Mm-hmm. The major contributors to consumption of resources and pollution, especially, uh, are are corporations. And there's no way you and I, as individuals, can regulate corporations. So that's where we use our collective bargaining power. Mm. And at least if you live in a democracy, you vote and you put people in power yeah. that share those priorities. Uh, time and time again, we've seen that as, as lofty as the mission statement is of, of, of for-profit institutions, they will not police themselves. Mm. So yeah. we have to have common sense regulations.
1: What, what do you do with like you know, I can be overwhelmed sometimes when I hear about the just the largeness of the problem and it seems like, how do we get everyone on board? Is there any way to reverse this? You know, when it comes down even to the things that we buy, you know, where wh- was my clothes made in a sweatshop somewhere in China? Am I contributing to slave labor? Uh, what about, you know, the fossil fuels that I have to use to drive to work? Like, how do you cope with kind of the sense of, like, you're part of this machine?
0: Yeah, so... This is a common problem, right and, and I see that, that my students will take one of two reactions: either they go extreme in one direction and they become what I call environmental snobs, people you can 't handle around you because mm-hmm. they 're constantly guilt tripping you on everything that you do,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or they put their head in the sand and just say, "Well, you know what there 's nothing that can be done. The train is the momentum of the train is too strong at this point. I just need to enjoy my life. There are other things I need to worry about, and then they they basically uh, uh, tap out, mm. right? And unfortunately, nothing happens passively. So if you, if you step out of the conversation, if you no longer care about these things, um, then it, those that are causing these things actively uh, win, right? Because now there's no resistance. Mm. On the other hand, if you take the extreme view of becoming an environmental snob, where you are... Uh, looking down on everyone for all the things that they're doing that that you don't agree with then you also lose out mm. so i always try to tell my students take a moderated approach right think globally there are many many religions there are many many ways of being human on this planet yeah. if you're just going to prescribe vegetarianism with an iron hammer i have news for you yeah. it's not going to happen mm. so Take the victories where you have them. If there's a company that does 2% of something that you agree with, then harness that 2%, celebrate that 2%. Don't focus on the 98 that you disagree with, mm. or we're never going to get anywhere. Because the truth is we have differing priorities. So I would say do what you can according to your own conscience as an individual uh, and recognize that every amount is uh, valued mm. and positive. Don't, don't get into that vicious vortex of, I can do more, I can do more, I can do more, because it it can lead to some pretty frustrating situations.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, I think that's such a great point. You know, how do we be kind to ourselves in the process? Because it's, it's going to be a long process. It's a long journey. Yes. And I find the importance in my own life just to be an educated consumer. You know, like you're going to probably pay more for some things, But how do you buy that uh, fair trade uh, chocolate instead of buying something that somebody didn't get paid the right wages for? How do you, you know, buy clothing from companies that, you know, have good ethical practices or just kind of making slow decisions? And people sometimes don't realize... The power that they have with their money
0: right, and especially so again speaking from a place of privilege right here we are in the first world we have that option of being able to buy different kinds of of, of uh, chocolates or any kind of product that we 're buying We also live in a society that we trust uh, gives us labels that are accurate mm. right but so again, that's dividing between what we can personally do on our own right. and then there are things that are above our pay grade that we can only tackle if we if we work together as a community, as a state, as mm-hmm. a nation to, to enact things that police or that provide venues for doing, for making better decisions. Mm-hmm. For instance... Um, it is not random that the United States is an automobile country, mm. right? If you, if you try living without a vehicle, it's not easy unless you live in like a, a big inner city area where there's some level of public so transport. Ways, yeah. yeah. Contrast this with uh, first world countries in Europe that have four or five different independent public transportation um, modes, right? We, I was just in Barcelona at the World Marine Mammal Meetings with four students, five students, they were all presenting. And I, I was amazed at how many unique ways we had to get around the city, right? There's like an above ground tram, like a train. Uh, there's a, the metro system, which is all subterranean. There's buses, there's, uh, you know, Ubers, taxis. They even have the little renter or scooter or bikes that you can kind of check off in one place and drop off in another. Mm. Um, lots of independent, clean, viable ways that you can get around without using your personal vehicle. Now, contrast that with... Um,
1: the Midwest somewhere. Yeah,
0: or, or even a, a fairly big area like uh, Los Angeles. Yep. Okay, what are your options in Los Angeles? It's a city that's spread out. It's not like New York where it's all skyscrapers, and if you kind of live in downtown, you can use the metro, although we
1: okay. can
0: talk about the efficiency of that or not. Uh, just as an example, when I was in Southern California, I lived in Loma Linda At the time, uh, my girlfriend lived in Loma Linda, my my now wife, and she was taking classes. She was at a university in Riverside, 20 minutes by car, Hmm. less than 20 miles away. She looked into using the public transportation, which the only option there is a bus system. Four hours is what the bus would have taken between all the stops and the connections that you have to make. It's just not viable. How would you make it to your 830 class? Right. Right? Yeah. So this is the example that I'm trying to give. Um, If you want to take the option of not using your vehicle, but you live in one of these scenarios, you don't have that option unless you enact people that set up an infrastructure that then can be utilized as an option.
1: Right. You know, LA is not a place to drive a bike either. No, no. (laughs) Varian
0: Springs is not a place to drive a bike.
1: That's true.
0: I have a neighbor that doesn't have a vehicle and I cringe every time I see him um, walking along the road. Yeah. Particularly the bridge there over um, Lemon Creek. Yeah. There's no curve. It's not designed for pedestrians. Right. Um, Especially now in winter when cars can slip and slide. Yikes. Uh, So it's just not it's not built. You're you're really at a disadvantage if you don't have a vehicle.
1: I really like the way you put about, you know, really harnessing our collective power to make changes because I think there are some people, and especially Christians, who might feel tentative about acting in the public square and being political, but to understand that sometimes that's the only way to, ha- to make big changes happen. You can control so much in your own sphere, but on larger issues, you need to work together as a collective, and, and that there's actual real biblical ground to-, to do that, and you should do that.
0: Yeah, and I mean, we see that in our church as well, right? You as an individual will make your decisions about your own household, etc., But when you're part of a church community, you as a church community make decisions about whether you should expand, build something new, uh, refurbish your church, and then what materials, et cetera. So this is all done collectively. Mm -hmm. And then uh, beyond that, say as a conference or as a a union. So all of these, every time you go up in hierarchy, if you will, you can make bigger and accomplish bigger things, if you will.
1: So what's your diagnosis? Like if if we don't pay attention, if we don't do something, we put our heads in the sand, like what are some things that are going to start happening if we don't make changes?
0: Well, uh, the things have already happened. Mm. So just biologically speaking, um, the, the, the climate that is the average weather, uh, globally speaking, has increased and is continued to increase. We just had um, 65 degrees reported as a temperature in Antarctica for the first time. Wow. Um, granted it's their summer right now, but still 65 degrees, that's remarkable. We've had a very mild winter this winter. Of course, you never want to take one anecdotal and, and, and draw that too much. We always look at global patterns Mm. and, uh, 2019 was the second warmest, um, uh, year on record. Mm. Um, so that, that's saying something right there, um, and if you look at the spread, I think I showed this in my presentation, where if you look at the spread of the top 10 warmest years, they're all like post 2000. So so we're clearly seeing a warming trend. Mm. And you might think, well, what's the big deal with that? But if you understand how ecology works and how everything is interdependent, and it's all uh, a very intimately tied into sort of a web of, of relationships, trophically and otherwise, things begin to break apart and we start seeing some major effects. So we see fires where we didn't see them as prevalent and they're harder fires that burn uh, uh, more than they should burn. We there are fire adapted, yeah, there are fire adapted habitats, but then if they burn too intensely, then it, it's too much. What we saw in Australia was absolutely devastating. That The carnage of, of wildlife. Uh, it's heartbreaking. You look at the, the latest reports that came out um, are talking about decades, if not centuries, to try to recover some of the populations in terms of wildlife. Maybe some of them won't recover. You know, there's uh, rare marsupials there that uh, might be on the brink of extinction now due to those fires. Wow. The forests don't just regrow instantly. This takes time. Yeah. So, you know, that's devastating. We're seeing floods. We're seeing... Uh, uh, natural disasters, if you will, which are nothing new, but we're seeing them in locations and at frequencies that the models told us that this would happen. And so that's an that's effect. We're seeing range shifts. So the, the range is where a species is found. Mm. And as climate changes, then th- the niche, what that species is adapted to, to survive in shifts. And yeah. so they must shift too. So species are heading north. And south, in other words, away from the equator, seeking the temperature ranges that they're adapted to, uh, or up mountains. But there's only so far up you can go, and there's only so f- north or south you can go, especially um, if, let's say, we have a boundary that we have designated as a protected area.
1: Mm.
0: And then there's a species range shift, and it shifts outside of that park. And into areas that now are used for agriculture, farms, cities, whatever. There's nowhere for them to go. They're squeezed out of their available habitat. So that wildlife area is still there, but it's no longer suitable for the species that it was designed to protect. Wow. And we're seeing that. We're also seeing the immersion of uh, diseases Hmm. that uh, weren't there before. And so we've had uh, a fungal disease that has wreaked havoc on amphibian populations globally. Hmm. Uh, We've seen... um, For various reasons, right? Anytime you have populations that are already stressed, which they are because of land change and fragmentation, you add to that anything else, a disease, a mutation, and and it can compound the problem and then we're in real trouble.
1: So hopefully this program has inspired you to begin thinking about how to incorporate a land ethic into your moral compass and decision-making. Recommended reading for this week is Dr. Daniel gonzalez Sokolowski's article entitled why Nature Matters, SDA Education in the Anthropocene, which can be found for free in the Journal of Adventist Education. We want to thank the Adventist learning community for making this program possible, as well as our guest, Dr. Daniel gonzalez Sokolowski. Be sure to tune in next week for part two of our talk on environmentalism and the church. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at the handle at AdventNext. Some of you have been writing in with recommended programs for the future. Keep them coming. Thanks so much for tuning in and see you next week.